are listening to audio from Fairfield Church of Christ in Fairfield, Ohio. To learn more, get connected, or to support our ministries, visit werfcc.com. So this last June, my daughter Lucy turned four, and it's kind of mind-blowing to me that like we're already at this point, she's four years old, um, but also it's just been so much fun getting to watch her grow, both physically and also just watching her little mind just kind of explore, explore the world around her. But if you've been a parent, you are a parent, or you've been around small children for any amount of time, you will very much understand what I'm saying when I say that we are in the why phase of life. Everything. Why is the sky blue? Why is that a dog? These are real questions. I don't have real answers for all of them, but I have answers. Um, But it's this question of why about everything. And again, if you've been around small children, you know it's not just one why. It's not just one single why. There's like five different layers of why there. Maybe an unending amount of whys that you kind of have to go through. And my wife and I, we try our best. We try our very best to just patiently answer all of these questions that we can with her, trying to go down the various depths of why. But I'll admit there are times that it is a little bit more challenging. There's some questions that kind of really just like make you twitch a little bit. If you, again, if you've been a parent, you, you know what I'm talking about. Um, the question of, hey, could you clean up your toys, please? Why? Uh, yeah, and you get that whole layer of questioning down through it. Um, also the question as far as like, hey, we can't give you another piece of candy right now. Why? It's, it's just not good for you. Why? It'll hurt your tummy. Why? I just have a piece of candy, whatever. <laughs> We'll just end the questioning right there. We don't do that all the time, but again, if you've been a parent, you understand. Like, there are times you just kind of wave the white flag, and like, all right, you win, whatever, kind of thing. Now, this is not something that is just exclusively unique to small children. Even as we grow, we still like to ask the question, why? And especially we like to ask the question, why, about rules, who are you to tell me that I can't do that? That's just a sign that says I can drive that fast. Who's actually going to catch me kind of thing? Why is this even a rule? It just feels kind of arbitrary in the first place. And even when we start getting those why question answers, much like small children, some of us, we think we're very clever and we keep asking, why? Kind of this false pretense of really wanting to know why, but also under, like, there's kind of an undertone of, I don't really want to know why, I'm just going to keep prolonging this issue until you give me the piece of candy. Um, but there's this why question, especially with rules, that we just like to ask over and over and over. And I think this mentality carries over, especially into why people are resistant to following God. I believe that many people look at Christianity and all they see is a book with some rules and regulations. Don't do this, don't do that kind of thing. And they might view it as an oppressive system designed to control, manipulate others, or just some arbitrary merit system like, oh, good for you, you followed that one rule. Do you feel better about yourself? Kind of get that feeling again. Because really, what does this supposed God have to do with my life? 
Who is this God to say what I can or cannot do with my life? Why does any of this matter? And especially as we're going through the Ten Commandments, this might be like the surface level of what many people outside the church know about the Bible and the rules, that they might just know the Ten Commandments. So why did God give us the Ten Commandments? Why did he give his people the Ten Commandments that we find in the Bible? Why is there all this other wisdom, all these other prohibitions in the Bible? Is it because God gets some dictator-like satisfaction out of people just following his special arbitrary rules? Or is there a possibility that there might be something deeper to the issue? You see, as we study this prohibition, this seemingly simple prohibition of adultery this morning, we're going to delve into why you can trust God as a good and wise creator and designer who really does love his creation and knows what's best for him. We're also going to examine some of the implications and challenges that people have presented against God's designs for humanity, and most importantly, how you can witness to the world around you about the goodness of God. Now, before we continue much further, I want to establish two very important premises that will carry us through the rest of this morning. Premise number one is that God is both creator and designer of all things. God is creator and designer of all life around us. This is a hugely important fact that we need to begin with. Again, that God is creator and designer of all life. And in Romans 1, we see that this fact has been made evident by simply observing creation around us. Romans 1, 19 through 20 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they, so we, are without excuse. We see from this passage that God has made himself evident in creation. And so now we as humanity are left with a choice. We either believe that there is a God who is creator and designer of all things, or, frankly, that everything around us is just the result of random chance. This is an aspect of faith, and it is a crucial choice that every person needs to make in their life. Because if you don't start with this belief that God is the ultimate creator and designer of all, then, frankly, none of this matters. You have nothing to go back to besides, ah, oh, it's just random chance. My whole life is falling apart. My life is a mess that's just the roll of a dice, I guess. Pretty hopeless way to live. It's a pretty hopeless mindset to get yourself in. However, I hope that if you're on the fence about God, or if he's good at all, that as we study this morning, you'll see that we are by no means an accident, and that we have been created by a good and wise designer which is our second premise that we're going to kind of talk about now, but also, again, try to show you as we go through these different texts this morning, that God is wise and that God is good. You see, once you've established God as a creator and designer, you then need to figure out who he is. 
Now, if you've ever studied nature, anatomy, or anything like that, and seen how we are physically put together, how the world around us is knit together, it's pretty incredible. Again, what we just read in Romans shows us that we can look at creation and see that this was by no means just a random roll of the dice. This was by no means chance that there is a creator and a designer behind all things. It should be evident that God knew what he was doing then when he put things together. He's a designer. And again, this wasn't just a random chance. If you think about a car, a car does not come together when a bunch of metal just smacks together and we got, ah, a car. A car works. That's not, that's not how vehicles work. There is a lot of design. There's a lot of thought that goes into making a vehicle that is even functional. And regardless of your opinion on a particular make, model, brand of vehicle, cars are not initially designed to fail. Cars are designed with a function and purpose. And when something goes wrong, I don't take my car to a baker. I don't take my car to a painter. I take it to someone who knows how cars are designed. I think I take it to someone who knows how cars are supposed to function. And in the same way, you and I, if we're trusting that God is creator and designer and that he is good and wise, we can look and see that not, by not being accidents, we are created with purpose, with function but yet we still find ourselves in a place sometimes where we are broken down, things aren't working right, and we just wonder why. We wonder why we're in the mess we're in. We try all sorts of places. We go to the baker, we go to the painter, we go to sports, we go to money, we go to our jobs, we go to so many other things to try and fix what's going on, and yet we miss going to the dealership. We miss going ultimately to the one who has created us and designed us with purpose and function. Psalm 34 8 is one of many psalms that extol this goodness of God. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. My hope this morning is as we dive further into this study that you will taste and see more clearly that God is a good and wise creator and designer. He created things with purpose and function. So, our primary for text for today is Exodus 20:14. You could go ahead and pop open to that. I'll probably beat you to it because it's real short, but Exodus 20:14 tells us you shall not commit adultery. Again, looking at this, it's easy to assume that we're all on the same page as far as with what this command is telling us. And it seems rather simple on the surface. But let's do our due diligence as students of the Bible and do a little digging around to see what we can maybe learn about this. So jumping back to some original language things, I'm not a great Hebrew or Greek scholar, um, but if you go back to the original language and you look at this word adultery, you've got the Hebrew word na'ap, which is to commit adultery. Explains it pretty good. Um, you've got the Greek, which is moisheu, which is to also commit adultery. We're using the word to define a word, which seems a little circular reasoning-wise. Um, and then you've got both literal and figurative usage. So if you're looking at the usage of the word adultery, you've got both the literal usage of adultery, but you've also got the figurative usage where God is describing his people's unfaithfulness to him or to the covenant. But again, in all this, we've not really actually defined what adultery is. And I know this might seem a little silly and pedantic, but it is important for us to take the time to just really understand what we're talking about. So if you go to the Oxford Dictionary, what is adultery defined as? 
Adultery is defined as voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and a person who is not their spouse. Again, if you know your Bibles, this seems kind of silly. Why are we spending so much time on this? Like, it's pretty cut and dry there, is it? Because it would seem to me, if you read this literally, it seems that there's a married person involved. So if I'm single, all I have to worry about is just not getting involved with a married person, right? That would seem to be the case. And again, if you know your Bible, if, you, if you've thought about this for any space of time, you'll know that mindset is silly. But if you also know your Bible, you'll know that in Matthew 5, this is the exact mindset that Jesus is talking about in his Sermon on the Mount. Because you see, he was talking to a group of people who were really good at following the law to the letter. Some would say too good at following it to the letter, to where, well, we have the whole like function of it and everything. We understand that, like, ah, oh, yes, it's adultery, but we look for all the technicalities within it. We look for every reason that we could maybe find a loophole. We love loopholes. We love to find ways that we are exempt from something. We love to find a way it's like, ah, yes, that does not apply to me. Why? Because it might get us out of trouble. It might save us from something. It might save us some headaches and things like that. But we like to find loopholes as people. And as ridiculous as this all sounds, it's not so far-fetched and removed when we start going down this path, especially when we start looking at our relationship to God's designs. You see, what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27 through 32, is that you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You see, Jesus takes this idea of adultery a step further by saying that if you even look at someone with lustful intent in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Jesus, how on earth is this even fair? Like, Jesus, I feel like you're reading into this a little bit too much. Like, again, we like the letter of the law. The letter of the law says this. I didn't do anything. Like, sure, sure, I might have thought about it. But I never did anything, so what's the problem here? What I hope you've seen throughout this series is that time and time again, it comes back to an issue of the heart. If you remember murder, it doesn't just start with a physical act of murder. It's not that someone just got up and murdered someone and like that was the big issue there. There's a lot of things that precede that action. Thought precedes action. James 1, 13 through 15 tells us, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Try to loophole your way out of that one. It's anyone without sin. 
We're going by Jesus' standard on this expanded um, definition, not just the static definition of adultery, but this expanded kind of living definition of adultery. Probably maybe want to call it sexual morality, maybe. If we're going by that, ugh, I can't imagine a single person is. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that can be a difficult idea to come to terms with. It can be a difficult thing for us to kind of wrap our heads around, especially when like, we know people in our lives, like maybe they're even unbelievers, but like they live good lives. Like they seem like they're faithful to their family. They might donate their time or money to different organizations. They are very generally kind and things like that. I mean, certainly they're good people, right? What we're looking at there when we see those things is simply the external facade that each one of us puts up in our lives. We can see the outside in a very limited scope of things in the physical world around us. However, Jesus is not looking at what's readily visible, but examining the unseen, the heart. Does what happens in here make a difference out here? It very much does. Again, think back to murder. If you are harboring um, enmity and strife and anger and rage and bitterness towards somebody, you're probably going to treat them differently. I know there's those of us that would say, like, I can fake it, you know, like, I can put a smile on, I can, I can, you know, put on this front of, like, there's nothing wrong between us, everything's good. We can usually see through that. I know we think we're very clever and sneaky as people, but even in little ways, you will find ways to cut that person out of your life, to murder them out of your life. And the same is very true in adultery. It could be a conversation here, a touch there, things like that. There are things that start very much before the actual act is ever committed that, according to Jesus' standard, are every bit as bad because it is a motivation of the heart. And we see from those different texts we looked at that as sin grows, it grows and grows and grows. Again, start small, but grows into death, grows into the actual thing that is prohibited. Okay, so you got me. Sure, I have fallen short of Jesus' standard, but why does it matter? What's the big deal with all of it? Like, why does God have any say into what happens between two consenting adults? Well, let's go back to that initial premise that God is a good and wise creator and designer of all things. Starting with that premise, we know that he knows how you are meant to function and what is best for you. If you go back to the beginning, you will see that God laid out his plan and design for human sexuality in Genesis 2.24, that therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The design for a sexual relationship was to only happen within the context of marriage relationships. This should also help broaden our definition of adultery to not just the married, but also to those of you who are unmarried as well. To say that if any kind of sexual activity is happening outside of the context of a marriage relationship, that's rebellion against God's original design and plan. And he designed things with certain function and purpose. But let's chase a quick rabbit, though. 
because I know many of you who are, are here are very intelligent, we'll get back on track. And some of you might know your Bible pretty well. And some of you, and again, people on the outside, they might know like little bits and pieces of the Bible. And they'll say, hey, so what about like polygamy? What about like all those other examples of what you, you would define as sexual immorality throughout the Bible? How do we reconcile those? Why are those in the Bible? What about King David in Bathsheba? How is this man after God's own heart? How is he still called that when he's caught up in an affair and murder? Well, my response would be to have you show me a single time, with the, with the polygamy thing especially, show me a single time that worked out well for anybody. Because guess what? It never really did. It worked out very, very poorly. And one thing, if you've heard me speak before, I, I say this a lot when it comes to studying the Bible and looking at the Bible, just understanding how we perceive things, is that there's times that the Bible is descriptive and there's times the Bible is prescriptive. The section we're in right now in the Ten Commandments is very much prescriptive. Do this, don't do that kind of thing. Okay, That's prescriptive. Descriptive is simply an observer's point of view as to what's going on in the room. It's not saying that God proves it. And maybe, frankly, especially you look at the idea of David and Bathsheba, maybe there's something that we can learn from this. Maybe we can learn what happens when David rebels against God's plans and designs. But maybe we could also see God's response to the brokenness of his people in this. Keep that in the back of your head. Coming back to our main question, though. Why is adultery, or again, in our expanded definition of sexual immorality, why is this a problem? I have spoken with many people going through major life issues or problems, and there's sometimes a moment that comes up where there's this disconnect of how my choices and my actions are affecting my life in a negative way. There's this disconnect of how my rebellion against God's design and plans has any impact about what's going on in my life. Why is that? You see, sin, especially adultery and sexual immorality, is incredibly, incredibly deceptive. It lies to you. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 says, Take care, my brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceptive and deceitful. If you've ever been to the beach, you'll probably like this next picture. Mm. How many of you is like, this is like the dream? Like, you close your eyes. Like, if someone tells you to go to your happy spot, that's where it is. Yeah. So, if you've ever been to the ocean, one of the things you might know about the ocean is if you go into the ocean to different spots, like as you're going to the beach, there will be a flagpole there. On the flagpole, there are various flags that are there to inform you of any dangers that are going on. Like, if it's a, the seas are rough today, if there's different things going on, or if there's a shark in the area or something like that, but most importantly, there's a flag that lets you know that there's rip currents going on. So if you're unfamiliar with what rip currents are, um, it's an oceanic phenomenon where you've got two, um, you've got this flow of water coming to the shore and retreating back. 
but you'll have the sandbars you can kind of see lightly there in the middle with that gap in it. So as the water goes in, it needs a place to go out. And so to do that, it funnels straight out through the middle of that sandbar there and creates this really high, um, fast-moving um, stream of water. And so the danger with a rip current is that if you are caught in the rip current, it will begin to push you out. It moves at about five miles per hour somewhere in there. They can be a little slower, a little faster sometimes, which doesn't sound that fast, but that is as fast as an Olympic swimmer is sprinting. So I don't know any Olympic athletes here. I myself am not an Olympic athlete. Um, and so what happens is as people start getting pushed out, your natural instinct is I'm getting further away from shore. I should go back to shore. Swimming is a very, very taxing exercise on the body, maybe more tasking than people realize sometimes. And unfortunately, what happens is as you try to fight this current, you are fighting a losing battle that just leads you to exhaustion. And unfortunately, drowning begins to set in um, after enough time. Now, the best advice that they give you to get out of a rip current is to either just let it kind of push you out and then once you're free of it, wait for help. Or if you are a strong swimmer, to try and swim horizontally along the shore, parallel towards against the shore, so that way you can swim out of that natural flow. Now, the really scary thing about rip currents is that to the untrained eye, they're very difficult to see. Oftentimes, rip currents um, form after a storm. So it could be just a beautiful, peaceful, calm, and tranquil day, and everything really looks fine. However, even when things look idyllic, tragedy can strike very suddenly and without warning. Now, even to the experience, those who know what they're looking for, some might look at this and say, ah, just a rip current. I've, I've dealt with that before. I'm a, I'm a pretty strong swimmer. Again, the problem is that sometimes we overestimate our abilities, and even knowing that there's dangerous conditions, people have gotten in anyways, and again, tragedy can strike in just a moment. And frankly, if you drove all the way to the beach, you'd look at this and say, why would I waste a day? I, you know, I spent all this time coming down here. Why would I waste a day and not get in the water? But there is a danger sitting there for both the inexperienced and the ignorant, as well as the experienced and knowledgeable. If you've been keeping up with the news over the last month, um, Florida has reported a shocking 12 fatalities over a two-week period due to these rip currents, adding to 13 other fatalities associated with rip currents already in 2023. To put that in perspective, that's 25 so far, and the current record, which is not a good record to have, was 28 for the entire year of 2021. Now, these are absolutely devastating and horrible tragedies with far-reaching consequences. But they really do stand to show us how easily we can be deceived, whether we are inexperienced and ignorant, or even if we're experienced and knowledgeable. There's a hidden danger underneath that either we might not know about, or if we do know about, we take a calculated risk. The same is true with adultery and sexual morality. What may seem pleasant and desirable on the surface carries with it deep lying consequences. And no one is 100% immune from this. Again, the inexperienced and ignorant and the experienced and knowledgeable. One of those big deceptions of adultery is that the idea, it's not harming anybody else, or if, or if it is, it's really just harming me. 
You see, in high school health class, one of the things I remember we talked about, um, I don't know if this is still a term they use a lot today, but was this idea of risky behavior. To describe behaviors or activities that put you or others at risk. And one of these things was risky sexual behaviors because, again, don't think about it a lot of times, but it can carry very serious health and social risks. The physical risks, there's disease, unplanned pregnancies, there's, it's a breeding ground for violence and abuse. Those are the physical things, but the social side of it, the relational consequences of it, we might say, ah, that's not that really big of a deal. But in counseling, one of the things that they'll sometimes teach is if you've got someone who's on the fence as far as like, oh, I'm thinking about, you know, leaving my wife to go with this girl or to go and do this, or I'm thinking about leaving this, is to do a really quick reality check with things. Because you see, adultery is so self-centered. It is all about my wants. Because it's so self-centered, we get so blinded to the world around us. So the reality check is, hey, there's collateral damage in this. There's splash damage. There is unintended harm that is more than just you and the immediate person involved. For example, what are you going to do about kids? How's that going to work out? How are your kids going to relate with you after this? There's family. What's Thanksgiving going to look like this year? Are you going to go to her family? Maybe, maybe not. You're going to go to your family? Ah, the Christmas, Thanksgiving, like that's just, there, there's a multiplicity of things that can go wrong there. You think about your living situation, your work, your friends and things like that, your just current social situation. All those things can be upturned by this. And again, people are left wondering, like, why? why? Why do bad things happen to good people? I can't figure it out. But jumping back to Romans 1, again, we've already seen that Paul has shown us that we are without excuse to acknowledge that there is a God who is a creator and designer. But he also shows that, that there are not arbitrary consequences for breaking arbitrary rules, that there are real consequences for going and rebelling against God's design. In Romans 1, 24 through 27, it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator rather, a creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. There are no arbitrary consequences. These are natural consequences, the due penalty that follow when we fight against God's design. A very simple example I like to give sometimes to help explain this is if there's a stove, so get a stove in your mind. Um, I like to imagine a coil stove, like one of those old coil stoves, that when you turn on the burner, it glows nice and red and everything, and you look at it, you're just like, man, I would love to touch that. And so you go in and you touch it, and what happens? You get burned. So who's at fault here? Oh, man, those stove designers really should have made that less tempting. Those stove designers really should have made it safer for me to touch that stove, because that glowing red, ooh, I like touching the glowing red coil. No. I mean, 
it, it feels ridiculous, but again, we are very clever as humanity. We have found ways to medicate and to just find workarounds to getting around this without acknowledging the real issue at hand, which is that I should not be laying my hand on a hot stove in the first place. Our fundamental approach is broken in this spot. So maybe, just maybe, God's not out to stop us from having a good time. But maybe he deeply loves and cares for his creation, you and I. He deeply desires to not see us suffer so unnecessarily, touching the burner over and over again and just left wondering why. Now, it would be highly irresponsible of me to just stand here today and just give you a good lesson in morality. Don't do this, don't do that. Because I know the reality is that many, if not most of us, myself included, have experienced first or secondhand the consequences and pain of adultery, or in our expanded definition, the pain that sexual immorality causes in our lives or the lives of those around us. And again, it's not something that anyone is 100% immune from. You are never too strong to fail. So what are we to do with this? Maybe right now you're in a spot where you're wrestling with this. Or maybe you are in the middle of this as well, too. Again, no one's too strong not to fail. It's deceptive. We can easily fall for the lies and deceptions of sin. And again, the thought precedes actions. There's no loopholes out of Jesus' standard. So what do you do? You think back to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the very first thing he says after explaining and expounding upon the definition of adultery. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If it's your hand, cut it off. Stop it. Stop it now. Stop before it is too late. Repent, turn around, and run back to your Creator. James 4, 7 through 10 tells us to submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The door is open for hope and healing. If you want a really great example of what repentance and healing from this specific sin looks like, just jump straight to Psalm 51. This is this spot where David finds himself post his affair and little run-in with murder he had with Bathsheba. We're not going to read it in its entirety, but there is a little section right at the end that I think is key to getting our heads around this idea of repentance specifically from this sin. In Psalm 51, 16 through 17, David writes, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. 
Again, it's not about the letter of the law. David understood the letter of the law about sacrifices to be made and things like that. But David, more than anything else, understood where everything went wrong initially. It was here in the heart. You can turn this around. You can find healing. You have a graceful and loving father who will gladly take you back. It's probably going to be a painful healing process. Again, there's a lot of consequences to this that we just don't think about sometimes because we're so blinded and deceived by sin. It's not going to be easy. It might be a little painful, but you no longer have to live in shame and secrecy. You no longer have to live in any of that. You can find freedom and you can find healing. We have to recognize our mistakes and rebellion for what they are and be willing to hear what God is saying and trust that his way is better. The hardest part about that, though, is that humility and listening are very, very difficult for us. I often hear people say, Christians aren't supposed to judge. It's not a false statement. We see this in Matthew 7, 1 through 2. Judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you measure, it will be measured to you. So clearly then, Christian, you aren't supposed to judge. However, I have heard this quoted from both believers and non-believers alike. And there's times it's less felt about like keeping me accountable and watching my heart, and it's felt more like as a defense to any interjection or commentary on certain lifestyle choices that someone may be making. So, when am I ever allowed to bring this up then? Think back to the lifeguard example. Are the lifeguards putting up those flags as a sign of judgment to you? Would you call that judgment? No, I'd probably call it a sign of warning. You see, judgment carries with it this idea of sentencing as well. If I was to look at you and say, because you have done this one singular thing, you are now straight bound for hell for eternity because of this one thing that you have done. Or maybe multiple things you've done. Maybe, maybe you've earned it. That's judgment. And that is completely unfair and inconsistent with the grace and love that we have all received from the Lord God Almighty in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And again, recognizing that this is an incredibly common and deceptive and destructive sin that's probably impacted all of our lives in one shape or another, we don't approach that, con- we, approach, we should hopefully approach that conversation a little differently with that same gentleness, that grace and humility that has been shown to us. Judge not, but please give a cry of warning. James 5, 19 through 20 says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Again, warnings without promise of hope, grace, love, or reconciliation. No. That's not what Jesus was about. That's not how God has designed things. He has designed a specific way for us to live and to function. But when we rebel against that, he is also gracious and loving enough that he has designed and gave purpose and function to Jesus to give us a way back. And this is not something we just have to limit to believers. Again, believers can fall into this, but this is something you can hopefully take and share with the world around you. I hope you'll be able to point to people and say, look, 
I know you're living this, your life this way, but look at this God who has designed things in such a good and perfect way. And even though there's imperfection down here, there is love and grace here, and you can find healing and hope in this spot. This last song uh, we're going to sing this morning is not only a song of praise, a praise of this hope that we do have in the person and work of Jesus Christ, but it's also a song of repentance and humility. And again, whether it's the adultery, the murder, or any number one of these things that you've been struggling with, let's take some time during this song to examine our hearts. And if you'd like someone to pray with, I'll be up here during this song. I know there's plenty of people here who would love to pray with you and walk with you in grace to help you find that healing and to find that hope. I'll be up here during this last song. I'll be up here for a little bit after service as well. But let's stand together today. Let's lift our voices one more time. And let's praise God for the grace and forgiveness found only in Jesus Christ. Let's sing. Thank you for listening to audio from Fairfield Church of Christ in Fairfield, Ohio. To learn more, get connected, or to support our ministries, visit werfcc.com.